0: How would you mess up the plans of God? If you so desired to derail and throw a wrench into God's work and into Jesus' mission, what would you do? If you desired to keep Jesus' kingdom from expanding, what avenues would you take? Would you outlaw the use of his name? Would you outlaw praying to him or, or singing to him, Maybe. Would you compare his people, I'm sorry, capture his people and lock them up so that they couldn't spread Jesus' so-called good news? Or would you attempt something much more sinister? Something that looked a little bit more like cancer? Something that would eat the movement of God from the inside out? Friends, this summer we've been weaving our way through the book of Acts, the book of Acts of Jesus through his early followers, as they've been doing amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they've been doing these amazing things for one big mission. This is to be witnesses to the coming kingdom of Jesus, both near and far. They've received power and wisdom for this, as they've received a fair amount of success thus far in our study. We're up to chapter 6. We've seen a lot of wonderful, wonderful things happen, but the other side of the coin is this very reality, that each step along the way, they've also faced the question, will this latest trial, will this latest wrench in the cogs be the end to our mission? As the disciples in Jerusalem increased we've seen that the problems among the disciples in Jerusalem have increased as well. At first, you remember back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, we saw Peter and John were drugged before the council after they had healed this lame man. And after healing him, they state that it was in fact not them who had done it, but it was Jesus who had been at work through them. And after saying this, they were threatened. They were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And last week we saw at the end of Acts 5, we saw that that they were really bad listeners and really good speakers because they do not listen to the Jewish leaders of the day but instead go about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ all the more. They go about teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus as if they'd been given a green light to do so. And for their stand, for their speaking, another wrench gets thrown in. They're beaten, flogged, and charged once more with silence. But these threats to the mission of God have not only come from without, have they? We also saw a threat come from within. At the beginning of Acts 5, we saw this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that they were dishonest about keeping some of the money from a property that they sold and they desired to care for themselves while at the same time looking like a couple super-Christians who are willing to go all out for Jesus so that everybody else would know just how awesome they were. But in their hearts, all the while being greedy, they desired to care for themselves. But each step of the way, God has proven to be faithful, hasn't He? He brought swift judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira who Satan was at work using to throw another wrench into the church. God judges them, strikes them dead right there, bringing fear to everyone who heard about it. And he has continued to empower his apostles, these these chosen messengers, who will stand in the face of what is quickly becoming this false religion of Judaism. And surprisingly, after each threat, as if we should be worried that Jesus' plan has been thwarted, we are told about the growth, the strengthening, and the unity of the church. Which brings us to our text today. A new threat creeps into the church. One that has the ability to split the sapling of God's people right down the middle, long before it's had a chance to truly spread and grow. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, you can always grab that one there in front of you. And Acts chapter 6 is on page 859. eight fifty nine. Let me encourage you, encourage you to get there, whether that's in the Bible you brought, one you borrowed, or even on your phone. As always, friends, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have Bibles in the foyer that we would love to give you as our gift to you today. You can grab one of those on your way out. All right, well, let's stand once more out of honor for the reading of God's Word. Friends, hear now God's Word given to us today from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. So whereas last week we looked at a larger portion of the Acts, and, and next week, we're going to look at an even bigger portion. We're going to blow through really two chapters next week. Today, we're going to look at just these seven verses. It's as if Luke has all of a sudden stopped and slowed down again, which he does from time to time, to really give us insight into what's going on in the life of these early believers. And it's true that this passage is used by a lot of folks who want to go especially into the conversation about deacons, And we'll get there today, but friends, there's much more for us beyond that. There's much more here about who God's people are in general and what does God intend to do amongst his people when natural, everyday threats of division rise up among us. We see this really in in kind of three sections of, of these seven verses, and I'll go ahead and tell you what they are, the three little parts, if you want to write these down in your bulletin or in your notebook there. First, in in verses 1 through 4, we really see a a threat of division, the threat of division. And next, in verses 5 and 6, we see the work of the entire body, the work of the entire body. And finally, in verse 7, we see the fruit of order, the fruit of order. So those are just the three little things we're going to look at today. Uh, By the end, you, you won't see that they're so little, but we see the threat of division, the work of the entire body, and the fruit of order, and as we consider each, we really drill. And in these, we just have seven verses, so we'll really be able to drill down on these. Uh, my prayer for us this morning is that we too would be a church that's marked by commitment to unity, an ongoing commitment to unity around the gospel and around the very God who has called us together to be a body of witnesses. So let's start just by considering this threat of division that we see there in those first several verses. Look back at Acts 6.1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, this is not the first time that we've heard this, is it? This idea of the disciples increasing. In fact, what's so interesting, and and you can even go back this week. Let me encourage you, if you have time this week, to be in the Word an extra amount. Go back and just read the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. The first eight chapters. It's that every time the church faces a threat, both on the outside and on the inside... It is often brought about, the threat, the end of the threat, the conclusion, the moving to a next section, brings about growth of some sort. Growth, we see it happen over and over and over again. It all started at Pentecost, when we're told there that 3,000 men believed. Then later, Peter heals a lame man, and after that, it says that 5,000 believed. And then last week, Luke resorted to just saying that there were multitudes of men and women who were believing. And so we see again today that the church is continuing to grow, that God's people in this time are continuing to grow, which means several things begin to happen. When a church grows, when when God's people grow in number, several things happen, then and now. It means that it becomes more difficult to know everyone on the same level, which then means that those folks who fit into some natural categories begin to build deepening relationships with one another. You get the the opportunity for what we commonly call cliques to rise up. Groups of people who are alike in some way kind of bond together. And everybody kind of turns in and huddles up with their backs to everybody else. The result is that misunderstanding and and needs now become more frequent. Now, before we even look at the specific issue that arises in these early believers here, we would do, do good just to take a step back and just note the reality that continues here. Now, what is it? Is that as a church grows, opportunity for sin and sorrow grows with it. Now, Someone who, who grossly misunderstands the Great Commission of Matthew 28 might look at this and just say, well, I'll have a solution. Don't grow. Don't, don't try to build the church. Don't, don't try to have new converts. Don't try to open the doors. Don't try to seek those who are far off. Don't grow. Stay the same. Keep the same people. Keep doing the same old thing. And friends, many of you know as well as I do, it's sad to say there are many churches in our day that are satisfied with that answer. We like us, and we like how we do us, and if too many folks start showing up, then we're going to have a whole mess of problems on our hands because we'll have to stop doing what we like to do sometimes. But that's not what we see here, is it? We see that the issue is not the growth. In fact, the growth is a sign that the mission is being completed and the kingdom is being expanded. So whatever problems arise from the growth, they're good problems to have. I mean, in our own church, we're facing some of those same problems of, of growing pains. Praise God that he's provided child care workers because for a while, it was a little bit rough. Your children were outpacing us parents. I don't know why. So what is the issue here, though? Well, continuing in verse one, it says a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. After a first reading, that might sound like an odd, uh, sound odd uh, and complicated to some of you, but but it isn't. It breaks down exactly what's happening here. Whereas the threat we saw from within before dealt with giving Ananias and Sapphira giving. We now see a complaint that comes up about receiving, right? It it seems that within this early gathering, there were a fair amount of widows. And we know back in in Acts 2 that they were sharing all things in common. We saw that again in Acts 4, that they were breaking bread with one another, that they, they were giving. But there would be these women who were widows, ranging in age, really, who had lost their husbands. Not only was this an emotional heartache for these women... It also meant a financial and physical burden as well in these times. Because of the culture then, work would have been very difficult for these women and the prospect of remarriage, very slim. And so the, the family of God then had begun to come and wrap themselves around these women and ensure that they were daily receiving everything that they needed to thrive. Much, much as we want to do in our own congregation, they wanted to make, these women, make sure these women were well cared for That they were loved and encouraged in the faith, especially in view of the expectation that was later given by Paul to, to young Pastor Titus for the older women to be teaching the younger women. And it becomes really difficult for older women to be teaching the younger women if the older women aren't being cared for. So we see that in the multitude, all is not well. The Hellenists are complaining about the Hebrews. Now who's who here? Well, I, one of the things I want to point out that often gets misunderstood in this text is, is often people read this text as if the Hellenist widows are complaining about or to the Hebrew widows. But that's not what we're told here. We're told that the Hellenists, as an entire population, are complaining about the Hebrews as an entire population about the widow situation. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it worked. So who are the Hellenists? Well, Hellenists here doesn't mean that they're Hellenes; It's something different. The Hellenists were people who were coming from a Jewish background, probably not from Jerusalem, but they were originally outside of Palestine, having been dispersed from the days of the Old Testament. What this also meant was that their primary language would have not been Hebrew, but Greek. So what we have here, really, is a culture war. The issue, it seems, is that these early Christian widows who speak Greek are not coming from the native Jerusalem culture, that is, the the Hebrew culture, are being neglected and receiving bread. You you can imagine what that had to be like for those ladies. Not only had they lost their husbands, but they were in a place where they were not naturally from, where, where language was being spoken that they may not have known as well, and they were not receiving the very basic needs of food. Now, this is a real issue. And we'll see how the apostles never downplayed the seriousness of this. But just consider a bit more, and you can see why it's such a big issue. While the Gentiles have yet to be wrapped into the gathering at this point, that's coming up, we already see that division can creep along these cultural lines. We can see how easily it was. It could have been for certain groups of people from certain places To be neglected. We can already see that while they were united in Christ, our differences can often be a point of division. I wonder what division do you perceive in the people of God today? Whether in this church in particular or in the Christian world at large. Maybe you're here today and you aren't a Christian. We're glad that you're here, but but maybe it's for you. One of the reasons why is because you know and see all too well this divided so-called people of God. Many of us have seen how division can creep into the local church under our noses and we not even notice it until the fracture is so large and how it wreaks havoc through gossip and backbiting and tearing down. It's summarized well here in this word, complaint. We find here the real reason that Paul tells us in Philippians 4, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Or, or in fact, Peter himself tells us in 1 Peter 4 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Isn't that the very issue that's at hand here? A lack of hospitality. Maybe P- Peter even had these early days in mind when he wrote his letter. Realizing so often that we see a problem arise in the church, We see a need or a burden to bear. And our first response is not to meet it, not to serve, not to step into the gap, but to sit on the sidelines, to become backseat drivers or armchair quarterbacks. I mean, friends, if we're just being honest, we give into the lie that it is more blessed to complain than to serve. So how did the apostles respond to this threat of unity? Of the believers. I'm oh, picking up in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. In other words, they called together the entire body of believers who were present. Now, I don't know how they did this. If they like sent postcards to everybody or sent them all a mass email or like posted it on their website or a text ma- like, But they got thousands upon thousands of people together. Right? They get everyone who can make it together, and this is what they say, picking up at the end of verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Literally, it is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now, that doesn't seem like a very nice thing to say, does it? I mean, at first glance, it feels like the apostles are a little uppity, Right? Oh, not us. We couldn't possibly serve the tables. But after you start to inspect what they're actually saying here, you find that there is something much, much deeper going on. Something that requires a wisdom and insight into their specific mission that we often overlook. Notice how they end their statement down there in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's twice now, you notice... In just this little speech, just these three verses, that they've mentioned that their primary task is to the word. First, they said it was to preach it, and now they call it a ministry in and of itself. What do we see happening here? Well, far from the apostles believing themselves to be to be elitist, remember that these men who still have these large wounds. From receiving flogging and beating upon their backs, who I'm sure daily walk around in bloody robes, far from them thinking of themselves better than everyone else, they know what their ministry is, that they are called to be ministers of the word. So far from being unwilling to serve, what we see here is that they understand where they are to serve and the responsibility that they have been given from Jesus for His kingdom building. We consider this ministry here more in a moment. Before we get there, we find taking this cultural complaint seriously an understanding of the seriousness of their own ministry. The apostles then offer a possible solution. Look back at verse 3. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What are they proposing here exactly? And This really transitions us to the next point. So, so let's be clear about it, what they're offering. They're asking the congregation, the gathered assembly, they call them brothers here, but it includes all of them, to choose seven men who meet certain qualifications to serve in this way. They are saying to the church that the problems, the real problems, need real solutions. And they are entrusting it to the people to decide who those solutions might be. Brothers and sisters, as we move to consider the work of the body now, Let's meditate on this truth for ourselves. That as God continues to build His kingdom in this place, we should not be so naive as to believe that problems will not arise among us. They have and they will continue to do so. Satan will threaten to undo us, as we sang earlier, from within. But what we find here is that the Jesus who suffered and died to purchase a people for himself, will equip them with every grace and every gift that they need to endure as long as he desires. So let's turn then and consider how he provides for these early believers through the work of the entire body. Let's point two, the work of the entire body. Now, before we even get into the action of verses 5 and 6, I want to think a little bit more about what exactly the apostles have just proposed. They've gotten the whole gang together, thousands of of brand new baby Christians stepping away from Judaism, learning everything that Jesus Christ has taught from the mouths of the apostles who are being witnesses. And what do the apostles say? Well, here's what they don't say. Let's point out what they don't say first, okay? They don't say, hey, you guys got a problem. Let us solve it for you. They don't say, well, we'll figure it out. We'll take care of it. You, you guys just forget about it. You go about your own time. Do your own thing. And we got you. We'll take the day off of studying the word. And, and we'll serve those tables for you. I mean, they could, certainly could have. I mean, these men are, are capable of, of amazing things we've seen so far. Who's to say that, that you know, Peter, he's already healed a lame guy. who couldn't just bust out, you know, some loaves and fishes and been like, bam, here you go, Hellenist widows. But that's not what they do. You might remember from the incident in Acts 5 that it was the apostles who had been entrusted with the financial well being of the church. That all of the proceeds were brought and set at the apostles' feet. They they had the authority, they had been entrusted. They could have easily oversaw the distribution of those funds. But they don't do that. They're not dictators in that way. Neither do they say, hey, guys, here's the issue you're having. And and here's the seven men that we think would be best. We're just going to put them forward, and they're just going to do the job. They'll be here tomorrow at 8. Show up and let them serve your widows. They're also not micromanagers. So what do they do? Well, they understand their place. They understand that their main task is to be spiritual leaders of the believers. Their main task is to oversee the entire gathering. They're giving themselves to caring for the entire flock through studying the Old Testament and studying the sayings of Jesus and then teaching and admonishing and rebuking and building up the believers so that they may grow up into spiritual maturity. You know, what's interesting about this, and I think it's no coincidence, as God's early followers left captivity in Egypt, led by Moses, they too were given to complaint. Right? Right? They complained a lot. They, they, too, grumbled over their food. They grumbled over the weather. They grumbled over their leadership. They, much like us, and much like the believers in Acts, were a grumbling people. Not only does God provide for them, but He reminds them over and over, particular Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is why the apostles, realizing their position, is so important. In Deuteronomy 8.3 we read, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. What does he want them to know? What does he want us to know? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. We find the apostles saying much the same in their proposal, do we not? We know the widows need bread. We know that they need to be fed. It is important that these ladies are cared well for, but they and you gathering do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And we're going to prioritize feeding you spiritually. You raise up from among yourselves those who can ensure that you are physically fed. We are going to ensure that you're spiritually fed. So we do see here, to some degree, the principles and the paradigm for the work of elders in the church today. While no pastor or elder today has the same apostolic authority as the twelve do here, our call as pastors is still the same. This is why Paul will go on to say in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This paradigm for pastoral ministry laid out here is this. In short, the men God gives to lead His church are called to be about about two things in particular. Bringing God to the people through bringing His Word and bringing the people to God through the ministry of prayer. These should be the kind of men we want leading our churches. Not those who do it all. Not those who are always looking over your shoulder. But those who equip and send off to do the work of the ministry, as Ephesians 4 tells us. And so the apostles entrust to the thousands of baby Christians the task of choosing. Choosing who? Well, again, verse 3 says, Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. There are two qualifications, really, aren't there? First, they have to have a good reputation, thought well of, primarily based on who they are. What the apostles are desiring here are men who have proven themselves, shown themselves, and are known as hard workers. And along with that reputation, they also desire that they are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We find that the apostles don't want the congregation to entrust this work to just anyone but to those who are capable of getting the job done because they've shown their faithfulness before and they know that they're going to depend on the Holy Spirit for faithfulness in the future. Again, it shows how seriously they're taking this need and also shows how they know that there are those who can do a better job than they can. Now, too often, I'm just going to admit straight out, too often, this is a go-to text for church folks and talking about the role of deacons in the church. And it is a good one. It is a good one. After all, we do get our word from de- for deacons from the Greek word diakonos, which we find here in this word serving tables. Literally, deacons are table servants. But these men here are not called deacons by name. Just as the apostles are not called pastors or elders by name. So what? Why do I bring all that up? Because what we need to understand here as we seek to apply these passages, and there's a whole slew of them in the book of Acts, is not to read them as to read them as principles and not as prescriptions. To read them as principles, not as prescriptions. And the principle held out here is the great honor that comes to our deacons as they serve the practical needs of the local church. But to stop there would be to stop short. Because Acts 3 doesn't just give us a paradigm for elders and deacons. It gives us a paradigm for service in general. I mean, if you came here today and you're a dad and you were looking for a Father's Day sermon, here is my Father's Day points, okay? And, and, and this, is, this is as good as you're going to get it. Here's some tips on being a good father from Acts 6. Take up the call of both the apostles and the seven chosen here. As you lead your children... Lead them by giving them the word each and every day. Lead them by teaching them all that you know from it. And by growing yourself, by giving yourself to the word each and every day. By giving yourself to being discipled by men who are more mature than you are. Be fathers of prayer. Actually pray for your kids. And pray for your own heart towards your kids. And that you would not be the resident grump in the house. None of you moms, amen that, okay? And finally, take up the posture of serving. Seeking the Holy Spirit and godly wisdom for how best to serve your family. And do it! And that concludes my Father's Day rant. But seriously, the sad reality of this text is that we often read it missing the great call for our service. These seven men are not called deacons on purpose. I, I agree that it creates some kind of paradigm that we see then played out by Paul and the other uh, Gosp- or, uh, New Testament writers down the line. But, but I think the reason that we're not told that these are deacons and these are who deacons should be is because there's a greater general call to service here. I've emphasized over and over. And maybe the real thing that's been missed here is the great responsibility put upon the congregation. I've said it several times, that these are new Christians, young in the faith. Why is that so important? Because of the great task at hand. All right, you see back in Acts 1-2, we read that, it came, that when it came to the 12 apostles, it was Jesus who chose them. And you read at the end there of Acts 1 and into Acts 2, they have to pick another guy to, to replace Judas. And so they pray and they ask Jesus to choose who he would have. And they cast lots. And they determine that Jesus, from his throne, has chosen Matthias to be the twelfth man. And so, so far in the book of Acts, the only one who's done any choosing has been Jesus himself. And yet, here, now, what do these apostles do? We find this choosing looks a little bit different. The choosing is handed down to the congregation to the gathering of believers. They have been entrusted. Therefore, pick out from among you. And verse 5 tells us that this leadership given by the apostles pleased the whole congregation. And they chose. Their unanimous agreement and submission to the apostles' leadership now placed them in the very place to be the hands and feet Of Jesus Christ himself. Friends, Matthew 16 tells us that Jesus has handed down to his church the very keys of the kingdom. And now we see his people beginning to use them. Binding on earth those who would take up this task. We aren't told what this process looks like. How votes were cast. Or even how they sifted through thousands of people to come up with just seven. Luke leaves all of that out. But what he does tell us is their names. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, later to be the first martyr we'll see next week. Philip, who we'll see in a couple weeks, serves as one of the first evangelists. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. Five men that aren't really heard from again sinking into the service they're given. And friends, Luke didn't need to share all the details of how it happened. Giving us these names and seeing the apostles lay hands commissioning them for the task says it all. See, to us, these names sound like some weird names that are just kind of hard to pronounce. And we know like a couple of them, but the rest of them like, okay, whatever. But to the biblical ear, the names say it all. These men... From their names tell us that they weren't Hebrews, but they were the Greek-speaking Hellenist. Now why is this so significant? Because the people that God allowed the congregation to choose were the very ones who had complaints. that the people, the seven that they chose, were the solution to the problems. They entrusted the ones who would have known and understood these widows best to care for them in a way perhaps no one else in that assembly could have. And they entrusted the ones on the outside, the Hellenists who were from outside of Jerusalem, the ones who would have been outcast and looked down upon and thought less of. They chose them to give the honor of serving tables. And so we have the work of the whole body here, don't we? The apostles then we have giving themselves to overseeing and leading the people through teaching the word and praying over the people. And the seven now giving themselves to ensuring that the widows are well fed and cared for. We have the entire body of believers accepting responsibility for themselves, exercising exercising the authority that Jesus has given his church. So what do we learn here? What does Luke intend for us to see? Practically speaking, then, he intends for us to see that God's people have always, since the beginning, been ordered and a deliberate people. Now the Christian culture that we live in seems to, that we hear blasted on the radio or flooded in the bookstores, is not like this, right? You don't hear too many songs on Spirit FM Or read too many church uh, books in in Christian bookstores that talk about being a deliberate church and how we're going to be well ordered and well organized and well put together. (laughs) But this is the underlying truth here. Here, the concept of being spirit filled must mean today that you're spontaneous. But this idea is far removed. Instead, what we find here is that the ministry of the Spirit within the local body of believers was the same ministry that the Spirit had in creation itself. That He has come to give order, to give guidance, to give direction, and to give organization. What we find here is a truth worth taking up all the more as a church ourselves. That we are called to be Spirit-filled people. I hope by this point in the book of Acts, you can at least agree with me about that. That God's people are meant and called to be a spirit-filled people. But what does it look like in the early church here to be a spirit-filled people? It doesn't look like craziness. It doesn't look like mass chaos. It looks like order. Here we see the concept of being a spirit-filled people must be order that we are called to be this people taking responsibility as God's ambassadors upon the earth seriously. If you're a member here, particularly listen up. I wonder if you consider your own membership in the church in this way, that God has handed you a divine responsibility to be used to build up his people. Or if you're in the process of becoming a member or you're considering being a member, do you see this underlying expectation That to be a part of the body of Christ, as we see here, is to be responsible for that body. Or maybe you're here today and you aren't even a Christian and you wonder why we make church such a big deal. Why we gather here in this building. We have this ordered service and we have pastors who lead and and deacons who serve. Maybe you've been around a bit and you wonder why the congregation has such a voice in the doctrine and the discipline of the church. Why all the order? Why all the on-purposeness of every single thing? We find the very core of the answer here in this text. That it gives us an outright command, not that it gives us an outright command of what we should do, but that it holds an eternal truth for God's people. That to be the people of God is not just to care about the God we worship, but it is to care about how we worship. We church the way we church on purpose. But how might we know being deliberate is even something that God would bless? What proof do we have that God blesses this kind of gathering with its apostles devoted to the word and the seven devoted to serving and the congregation finding unity together? Well, let's close this morning morning by considering the fruit of that unity in verse 7 of Acts 6. Let me read it for us again, that final verse, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Friends, what is the fruit of this ordered ministry? Well, three things that are worth seeing and considering for ourselves. First, the word of God continues to increase. Now, maybe that's a confusing phrase to you. What, what does it even mean? How, how can God's Word increase? I mean, they're more than likely teaching the Old Testament here. Does this mean they're like adding things to the Old Testament so that the Word of God would actually increase and the book would get bigger and bigger, bigger No. The, the New American Standard uh, translates it this way, that the Word of God kept on spreading. And what we see is that despite the opposition that we saw last week, despite the potential fracturing of the church as we've seen today, that as the body unites around God's Word through both being taught and living it out, trusting and obeying, the good news of Jesus Christ spreads. The witness to the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ continues to be proclaimed to all who have ears to hear and all who have eyes to see. The Word of God goes free in the ordered church. And what happens because of this? Well, second thing we see, the church continues to grow. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We're not talking about addition here anymore. And the number of the disciples multiplied. The people of God continue to be built around the Word of God. Friends, in seeing this, let me ask you, Is there a more worthy thing to take up ourselves? Is there a greater church growth strategy than this? Is there a greater way to explode our evangelism beyond these things? Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, By this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what we find here is nothing beyond. In this everyday living of life within the local body, we see the fruit it begins to produce. Who would believe that conflict and complaining, when handled rightly, would be the very means by which God would grow His people? Do you not think that the non-believing widows in Jerusalem heard of how the Christians would care for them? Do you not think that the fractures that were happening in the city of Jerusalem between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers of Jerusalem were confronted by what took place here? What's happening in the life of the church is exploding and shining upon the culture. Do you not think that the apostles and the whole assembly point to where such a wonderful unity had come from? It came from Jesus. It came from his reconciling work to the Father. It came from the Holy Spirit that he has given us. And I, well, I know so many of us have baggage from broken down relationships and, and the broken down house of the local church. Here's where some real repair can take place. I know some who have even walked away because of what they've seen in the church. And putting that aside, look here and see the work of the cross. Look here and see the unity of this people, not free of conflict, but free of division. And see what the gospel can do. This is because of who Christ is. He tells us that he did not first come to be served, but to serve. He came first so that he might take a lowly place and give himself over to the filth and squalor of this world. That he might become poor to make us rich that he might become lowly to lift us up, that he might become sin to give us righteousness, that he might become death to give us life, that he might experience the wrath of God to give us the grace of God. This service of Jesus is what bolsters up his people to walk in love and care for one another. And this salvation of Jesus, it buoys war-torn saints to endure the world together. Which really brings us to the final fruit of this gospel-driven conflict resolution. And it's an odd fruit at first. The passage that we've got today before us closes by saying this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want to give you an answer, but here's a question to chew on this week as we prepare to come next Sunday. Why did Luke include this here? Why this little phrase? Why does he want us to know that many of the priests became obedient to the faith now? I think there are several reasons. First, perhaps he intends to again remind us that the gospel is for everyone, from the lowly widow to the high priest. The gospel can lift up the outcast and bring down the haughty. And this is still, still true. But I think there's a deeper reason he brings this up in particular. I believe Luke brings it up here to show that it was the work of the church. The love, the service, the devotion, and the care that finally broke through to many of those who had previously been opposed to the gospel. You'll remember last week that Gamaliel had convinced the priests and other leaders to leave the apostles alone and leave the people alone to see if this thing had fizzled out. So they beat them fiercely and sent them on their way. And so we may ask, what is it that could break through to those who were devising so many plans to thwart the plans of God? What is it that would break through the hardened shell of these priests? What could soften the very ones who had crucified Christ and missed the Lamb of God that they had so often pictured in their sacrifices? Here it is. The people of God. Devoted. To the Word. Devoted to one another. Devoted to serving. See, friends, I think the reason that Luke wants us to know that so many priests turned to Jesus is because they began to see that God was doing a new thing and raising up not just a family line of priests, but a kingdom of priests. And Peter himself would go on to write many years later, But you, church, Or a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And friends, what does this mean for us today? It means that we take up the same call. We find honor in serving tables. We find honor in serving one another. and We find honor in serving God's people and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do desire that the name of Jesus would be glorified here in this place. And God, your word has shown us today that that glorification can and does come through our humble service. And so, God, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would, God, that you would make us a people who humbly serve one another. God, we do pray and we ask that you would raise up from among us more pastors and more deacons. But, Lord, we pray even greater than that, that you would make us a body united around the gospel. That whenever conflict and division creeps in among us, we would take up the call of Christ. And that we who have been reconciled to the Father may have a ministry of reconciliation, of love and care, of forgiveness, and suffering long with one another. God, would you do this work for your kingdom's sake and in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.